Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Welcome to another episode um, of a very interesting uh, conversation with uh, Dr. Fuzrana. Fuzrana from uh, Reasons to Believe. You can go to reasons.org and look at their website. You'll find a wealth of information there. And we're going to get some background today uh, from Fuzz on how how you came to become Christian, how you became to become Christian, um, and how you got into uh, reasons to believe and what your focus might be. It seems uh, certainly that Dr. Hugh Ross, who was interviewed recently, certainly covers the macro, if you will, the macro of creation. And you come at it from a microbiology and, and the micro of yeah. creation. So it really fits well together. You, you guys work phenomenal together. And I'd like to hear about, uh, again, your background, a, a bit of a biopic, and then yeah. the ministry itself with its scholars and what its focus is. And then I wanted to cover one topic just out of interest. Sure, uh, sure. So if, if you could uh, yeah. give, give us your background. Yeah, well, Dan, first of all, thanks for taking the time to have me with you. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home is actually uh, a bit of an unusual home that I grew up in. My father was a Muslim. He came to the U.S. from India uh, through Canada. He was a nuclear physicist. And uh, my mom's family was uh, from Germany, so she, and she was a non-practicing Catholic. So when they married, there were two different faiths represented in the house. Um, my, my, because my mom was non-practicing, my dad never asked her to convert to Islam, which is typically what happens in those situations. So growing up, I was exposed primarily to, to Islam. And when I was a, a teenager, I became serious about exploring my, uh, exploring my father's faith. And so I recited the Shahada, which is the declaration that Allah is the one true God and Muhammad is his one true prophet. I learned how to pray for my father, began to read English translations of the, of the Quran. I wasn't reading it in Arabic like you're supposed to. Uh, and probably a year, year and a half, was very serious about this. And then a number of things just caused me to lose interest. Uh, you know, Islam is, is very works-oriented. And so praying and, and the, the, the things that you would do as part of the faith practices Five of pillars. Yeah. It's very, to me, it was very repetitive, very onerous. It became burdensome. And for a young guy, that's not really the, the best prescription. Plus, you know, I liked rock music and sports and girls. And so I ended up, you know, really drifting away and became an agnostic when I went to college and took courses in, in biology. You know, I was hearing that you know, the origin of life, the design of life, the history of life could all be explained by evolution. And the professors I had really were uh, pretty negative towards religion. 
And so I was very much influenced by that and settled into a position of agnosticism. I don't know that I would ever deny God's existence, but I wasn't really concerned if God existed or not. Just wasn't relevant. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't relevant to me. And I wanted to become a biochemist. And, uh, and so I did everything I could to prepare myself to go to grad school. And it was in grad school, really studying in depth biochemical systems that I became deeply impressed with their elegance and their sophistication and began to ask the question, well, how do scientists explain where these incredible systems come from? This is the origin of life question. And so this would have been the, the, the mid-80s. And even at that point in time, looking at the, the literature on the origin of life, uh, I, be, I became convinced there was no way that chemistry and physics operating in an evolutionary context could somehow produce biochemical systems. And so that convinced me there had to be a creator. And so then the question was, who's that creator? And I was challenged by a pastor to read the Bible. I never had picked up the Bible uh, other than looking at the Genesis 1 account out of curiosity as an undergraduate student. Um, because I had a friend whose father was a Methodist minister. And so we would read Genesis 1 and talk about it and, and get into some kind of unusual conversations. But uh, so the first time I read the Bible seriously was when I was uh, a grad student, about 23 years old. And um, is the, the Gospel of Matthew that really opened my eyes to my sin and opened my eyes to the person of Christ. And, and uh, that was... In, instrumental in my conversion to Christianity. Yeah, it's interesting to hear coming from a materialistic background to all of a sudden having the interest in the spiritual side or like our dualistic natures. Um, is there any uh, one instance that uh, stuck out to you as, as put that into your mind that that was a probability or a possibility? Or is it just just the general observation of uh, complex Yeah, systems? well, I can remember, you know, <laughs> Being, you know, being, again, just deeply enamored with the elegance and the sophistication of biochemical systems. And, you know, it was not uncommon when I would interact with other grad students for everyone to say, this is just unbelievably cool. This is amazing. So everybody is, is responding in that same way, regardless of your worldview. But when I decided, look, I, I'm a grad student now. I want to know the nitty-gritty details of how chemical evolution produced life. So I started reading, you know, when I had a little bit of time on my own, at different models that people were proposing and, and looking at the studies. And I can just remember that day, one day when I'm sitting at my lab bench reading, it's like, this can't work. You know, and it's like the only way this, you could explain this if there was a creator. So I can distinctly remember that point. Fantastic. Well, this is the first time I'll announce uh, actually over a podcast. We are cross-examined. We're starting a podcast called The Master's Artist, and it uh, argues for the existence of God from the transcendence of beauty in almost mm. anything. And it sounds to me, and, and I've got to interview you on that podcast then, because it sounds to me like it's this transcendence of the complex nature of things. It was just... Yeah beautiful and wondrous that actually yes. drew you into this desire right. to learn more and hence you found yeah. the uh, creator of the universe and, and Christianity. How did it come then from that to Christianity? Was it just biblical? Was it the influence of people? Yeah, it was um, uh, 
pr- primarily, re- really, it was reading the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you know, I the the uh, my fiance uh, uh, rededicated her life to Christ while we were a year apart. So she was finishing up her undergraduate degree. I was getting my in grad school, and so she rededicated her life to Christ while that in that time that we were separated, her. Um, um, mother invited her to go to a small Pentecostal church in downtown Charleston, West Virginia and on Easter, and she rededicated her life to Christ. So she began to share with me her pastor, you know, was the one who challenged me to read the Bible, you know. And, uh, and one of his friends that were, were, was with him when we were having our com- – when we met and had a conversation – gave me a little booklet on a little track on how to become a Christian, but it was, and I just kind of stuck it, you know, stuck it away. Uh, and I went out and bought a, the cheapest Bible I could find at a, at a bookstore and began reading through, you know, the gospel of Matthew. And it was really the sermon on the Mount where, you know, I, the person of Christ to me was so winsome, right? And he was teaching truths that I couldn't deny were the right way to live an authentic life. But it's like there's no way I could live up to this. Yeah. So Christ was uh, was very appealing to me, but also was strongly condemning me, right? And and that that's when I pulled out this little booklet, and you know the gospel was presented. That's it's so interesting. The late Dr. Tim Keller uh, mentions that Sermon on the Mount about how a college professor as an assignment, gave uh, each of the kids this assignment, you need to go read Sermon on the Mount and then come back and we're going to discuss it. So they went and they read it and she took a poll, you know, written poll, and she was reading them and to a person, they all said, I hate it. And she goes, why? She goes, because the comments were because this is exactly how you want to be treated and how you want to live in a society like this, but none of us can do this. So you're right, it is Christ presenting uh, this picture of the wholeness and how people were designed to live by the Creator and yeah. designed to interoperate in society, and yet no one can do it. Yeah. And uh, he offers that, obviously, in, in, yeah. uh, you know, through his death, burial, and resurrection, as uh, Christianity right. affirms. Yeah. So how did you then come to reasons to believe? Yeah, well, you know, I finished up my Ph.D., did a couple of postdocs, took a job in, in R&D and in industry. And, um, you know, I never saw a conflict between science and faith, but there, as, as I began to grow as a Christian, there were more and more questions I began to have about how does Genesis 1 really fit? I didn't see anything that was problematic in Genesis 1, but I just like, how does this all kind of fit together? And it was through that process of really searching and, and grappling with, you know, the, those uh, the details of, of Genesis one in light of science that I came across a book, Creator in the Cosmos, written by Hugh Ross. This is probably the the first or the second edition. This was in the in the mid '90s, and I was just blown away uh, with the integrity of how. Hugh approached the science, but also the integrity with how he approached scripture. And it was like the missing piece of the puzzle. And once I saw how he was thinking and, you know, saw some of his insights, it was just like the puzzle fit together perfectly. And it was really uh, transformative because I was, you know, working in R&D with, you know, every day I would encounter 40 or 50 PhD scientists, you know, and, uh, and, 
and so I was not quite, not embarrassed by my faith, but I just never was outspoken about my faith. But when I realized, wow, I actually have an opportunity here to 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 defend that not only defend the faith, but make a positive case from science to other scientists that that Christianity makes sense. I began to talk about it, and one of the things that was funny to me, or maybe sad at the same time, is that as I began to be vocal about my faith, suddenly people that I had worked with for five or six years that I didn't know were Christians, they didn't know I was a Christian until I started speaking up, began to identify themselves as a Christian. And so it was amazing how many closet Christians I was working with. But we started having Bible studies at, at work. We, you know, there was a, one of the, my colleagues came to faith in Christ through that experience. So I realized the power of that. And, and you know, that, that excitement really said to me, man, the most important thing I could be doing as a scientist is really communicating to people that science is actually in support of the Christian faith. Anything I'm doing in R&D, making products, is fun. It's fun to work with some brilliant people, you know, that I was working with. But that all pales in comparison to actually showing people that connection between, between science and faith with the idea that they then would ultimately be open to a relationship with God. Yeah, that's fantastic. That is such a neat dynamic. I, my, my personal, uh, just, a, just a tidbit was uh, I really came to faith at age 48, even after nine years of Christian, you know, middle school, high school, yeah. and the military where I was very agnostic. But it was age 48 when I came to belief in Christ, and it was really understanding what I w- had been forgiven, you know, yeah. by accepting Christ after a life of, uh, you know, I won't even go into it on the air, but it, it was not good. And the dynamic that you mentioned of being able to share your faith finally because it's real, mm-hmm. you know, and the relationship with Christ is real every night, every day. Um, it, you're right. There's people popping out of the woodwork everywhere. Well, I'm a Christian too, yeah. and, and I wondered, oftentimes, you know, why didn't why didn't I know that? Why didn't you come out? Come on, you know, let, let's all yeah. grow up a little yeah. bit in Christ and and do what we're supposed to be doing. Because as you said, yes, you're a scientist, but like you says, you're an evangelist first. You are you're a Christian first. You're a Christian that does science, yeah. not a Christian scientist. Yeah. I'm a <laughs> right. I'm a Christian that does business and yeah. and a few other things. But uh, it's neat that when you begin to share your faith boldly, how how it's magnetic. It draws mm-hmm. others to you that yeah. that otherwise would not have come out. Yeah. And uh, so I'm I'm hopeful the church learns this and and really starts speaking up, becoming yeah. bold, especially the way yeah. society's headed. Yeah. Um, so you join Reasons to Believe. How long have you been there? Oh, gosh, it was, uh, it's been almost uh, 25 years, 24 years I've wow. been with Reasons to Believe. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I got involved with them first as a volunteer and worked a few years, and, and I heard through some communication that they were looking at to add scientists to the team, and I thought, well, I'm just going to throw my name in the hat. And, uh, got, you know, wow. God opened up doors. That's fantastic. So, were you a visiting scholar before? Uh, I was at that time part of the uh, uh, volunteer apologetics community. I think is what right. we were calling it in those days, and it's it's morphed over time. But yeah. So tell me about the visiting scholar program, which I think is quite unique. It's almost as if uh, reasons to believe has 
fellows, you know, senior yeah. fellows. But that would be my analogy. Can you describe that? And yeah. Kind of- well, you know, I mean, one of the the legacies that I think Hugh will ultimately leave is not so much all the great books that he's written, which are, and he's still cranking out books you know, that are that are going to be in, incredibly impactful in people's lives. But it's really the people that he's inspired to follow in his footsteps. And it's not just people like me or Jeff Zwerink who are on staff at RTB that he's inspired. He's inspired so many people. And I, I get to meet these people practically every day someone will come up to me and tell me the impact that Hugh has had on their lives. And, um, and so the idea is that, boy, could we marshal those people that, that, that are really uh, in line with us at RTB and inspire them to begin to think of themselves as scholar evangelists, right? Yes. Where they're using their scholarship as a, a, a platform to, to share their faith. And, and so the idea is that if we could build a scholar community, this really could be the future of reasons to believe beyond Hugh's lifetime, beyond my lifetime, where reasons to believe really becomes this organization of scholars, not only in the sciences, but medicine, engineering, in the humanities, you know, in theology, philosophy, biblical studies, you know, the list goes on, that uh, are see themselves, again, as evangelists who are scholars and and we're currently at 200 people who are volunteering with us who we are investing in we're training we're encouraging but they in turn are now starting to create resources for us they're starting to take a lead in, in certain project areas that we don't have the expertise are these like um postdoctoral you know, professors and things? And yeah. where do they, have they come from major research institutions or? Yes, I mean, it's all over the place. There are people that are, you know, in, in the academy, some of the people that are top-notch, world-class scientists who are Christians. It's humbling, you know, that they are even interested in what we're doing. Uh, there are people that are working in industry, people that uh, are, you know, medical professionals, men and women that are just highly accomplished academically and also professionally, we're looking for people with terminal degrees for this particular community. There's another community we have where people can be part of the team who aren't, you know, you know, right. you know, um, right. accredited. Uh, yeah. You know, aren't, aren't at the highest level of their, of their discipline. Uh, and, and those are very important people to us as well as part of the community. Uh, and we also are encouraging young people who are working on their PhD or, or in medical school to join the community as associates where now people in the community can begin to mentor them and encourage them and give them role models for how they can be Christians in science or Christians in medicine. So it's it's really exciting, you know, to, to see where the, the community is going. I don't know if I mentioned this, but we're over 200 people. And the vision is within the next 10 years to be at 1,000 people. And if can you, can you imagine if there's a thousand people who saw themselves as scholar evangelists and we're trying to recruit people all over the world, right? right. And, and they're right. out speaking on university campuses, speaking at churches, even if they are speaking at a handful of universities and a handful of churches every year, the reach is enormous. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. That's fantastic because that's really where where the degradation started, you know, after the 
or post-enlightenment was in the academia. Yeah. And, and to, to take it back at the level that RTB is, is going at it is just fantastic. I, I think that's the, the exact right thing, right direction that you're headed. Um, I'd like to shift just for a second. Now, I've taken, um, even as recently as this past year, I like to stay up to date on yeah. many of the things. And the uh, origin of life and um, uh, specifically as well, theistic evolution, or I believe they like to call it evolutionary creationism, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, such as espoused by Biologos with mm -hmm. Collins and Venema and the others there. I, I part, part of the courses, which I encourage everybody to take, they're just phenomenal courses to, to understand uh, you know, the complex life forms and how it uh, comes about through creative work of our, uh, of our God. Um, there was a discussion in this book and I don't remember the name of the book. What is it uh, with with uh, I think scholars? it's uh, uh, old Earth and evolution. Uh, oh, sorry, old Earth or evolutionary creation. Right, and and so there it was a it was a very respectful conversation between scientists from both organizations, RTB and Biologos. One of the things I you correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed towards the end of the book that there was one hill to die on. Um, that Biologos uh, tried to drive their stake into, and it was on genetic scarring, I yeah. believe. Would, would, could you frame that argument? Uh, because I have seen it since then with yeah. others, yeah. you know, with kind of a folded arm and smug look, well, yeah. genetic scarring proves, right. you know, th theistic evolution. Would, could you frame that and what RTB's response, knowing that, Science, science, we're always discovering new things. But what does the current uh, argument look like? Yeah, well, the, the, the idea behind that argument is that when we, we look at the human genome, uh, there are a number of sequences, a significant proportion of sequences in the genome that, that seem to be non-functional, that, that look like they're, they're junk DNA. That's the term that's sometimes used for those sequences. And the idea is that these were sequences that were one-time functional, but then underwent some kind of mutational change or degradation so that they're still retained in the genome as these non-functional sequences, uh, but they have, you know, they, they presumably, you know, reflect some kind of evolutionary history. And these same sequences are found, for example, in the, in the genomes of the great apes, chimpanzees, orangutans, and gorillas, uh, and they, they are similar sequences or even identical in some cases, and they are in corresponding regions of the genome. So the question would be, well, why would God create genomes where there's junk in it, and that junk corresponds to junk in, in the genomes of other creatures? So the reason it's called genetic scarring is it because it, these sequences are once, once functional and now they're damaged. So they, they say these are genetic scars that are left over from an evolutionary history. Uh, and, and so it is a compelling argument in, with the idea being that these mutational events must have happened in the ancestral group that gave rise to, let's say, humans and chimps as separate evolutionary lineages. And, and our response to that would be, well, um, you're assuming that these sequences are non-functional. You're assuming that there's not a reason for them. And, and, and so, you know, um, you know, so the example that I 
gave in the book in response to this this genetic scarring is that just because you see a scar doesn't mean it doesn't have a purpose. So, for example, you know, I think that I'm trying to remember what I said, but let's imagine that I belong to some kind of secret club, and you know, w- the way in which we show membership in the club is that we all cut our finger, you know, in a particular spot and produce some kind of permanent scar, and and so. That permanent scar has a purpose, though we may not know what that is necessarily. So just because you see scarring doesn't mean, and it's shared, doesn't mean there's not a purpose. Hasn't there been a lot of this, uh, what was originally called junk DNA by, I believe, Francis Collins? What, hasn't there been uh, discoveries that this junk DNA actually does have a function? Yeah. And epigenetics, for instance, does have a function yeah. whereas it was thought not to. So as you say, just because we don't know, and I'm not calling it a God of the gaps thing, but just yeah. because we don't yet know yeah. fully everything, we're learning daily about things right. in the genome and yeah. uh, epigenetics especially. What is that true? That, yes, that, that, it is. And um, I, I can remember when I started at Reasons to Believe, one of the first articles I wrote for the, the ministry was about junk DNA, and I, I made the point, this would have been in, in 2000, that we will, I, that I predict that we will discover function for the different classes of junk DNA. There's not a single class, there's multiple classes. And over that, that the last 25 years, we have literally discovered function for every class of junk DNA. Uh, there in, um, the early 2000s, a project was initiated called the ENCODE project. It's one thing to have the sequence of the human genome. It's another thing to be able to make sense of it. And so the ENCODE project was designed to try to catalog all the different types of functional sequences in the human genome. So you could kind of think of it as trying to discover the Rosetta Stone for the, for the human genome. And uh, in 2007, they published a preliminary result, which was sampling 1% of the genome, and they were shocked to discover how much function, and they were seeing function in junk DNA. 2012, they they published phase two, where they're saying it looks like 80% of the human genome is functional. That number is probably closer to 100% once we finish cataloging things. And, And so, that's, that study seems to identify a whole range of function for junk DNA. And since that time, people have independently of the ENCODE project have generated, you know, understanding of, of, of for example, pseudogenes. These are genes that were one time functional that then underwent mutation according to the evolutionary model. And that broke those genes and they're shared in humans and chimps, for example. Well, we now know why pseudogenes are in the genome, they're playing a regulatory role, and their role is critically dependent on the fact that they are gene, they have gene-like structures. The only way they can function in a regulatory role is because they have a gene-like structure. So if I was trying to design a sequence to regulate, uh, to perform the regulatory functions of pseudogenes, I would design them exactly that way. Or Another class of junk DNA that gets a lot of attention are called endogenous retroviruses. These are supposedly sequences that come from a viral, a retroviral infection, and they over time become disabled. 
And it turns out that these are actually functioning as an antiviral defense system. And again, if I was going to design an antiviral defense system, it would look exactly like endogenous retroviruses look. So, you know, on, a, on, I, on our website, reasons.org, I've got a blog called The Cell's Design, and I frequently will write articles about the latest discoveries that are happening uh, in science, and many of them are focused on new insights into junk DNA. But it's interesting, Dan, because as I'm reading the scientific literature now, it's the, the way people engage so-called junk DNA is very different. You know, 25 years ago, nobody even wanted to study it. Why spend res valuable research dollars studying sequences that are junk? Right. And now people are seeing these sequences and they're, and they're saying the fact that these are sequences that are shared, the, the, the biochemists would say conserved from organism to organism means they must be functional. It gives common design a different term or a different meaning. Yes. It's common design because just like Henry Ford put four tires on the first car, Elon Musk is putting four tires on the, oh, well, you yeah. know, it, it can't be. No, it's, why, why do they still have four tires? Because this is a great design. So a yeah. common design from a common designer, yeah. it would make sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, but it, it's interesting because research scientists are now not saying this, dismissing it as junk, but are asking the question, well, what function is it performing? So there's a complete, you know, change of, of, paradigm of perspective. Shift. Yeah. And, and yet evolutionary creationism still holds to it just being scar, scar yeah. tissue. Yeah. Yeah. Or they, they, or they will see this shared similarities again as reflecting common ancestry. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the challenges with the common design argument is that it implies design and purpose. And because of Darwin's influence, you know, Dar the, the origin of species was really his attempt to remove teleology from biology. That's the Darwinian revolution where he was looking to replace the mind of a creator with the mechanism of evolution. And so biology is strongly anti-teleological. And so if you are embracing evolution uh, as a means by which God creates, you are, in a sense, ad adopting what most biologists would say is a anti-teleological mechanism. Yeah, right? pull, pulling and, and the so, purpose out of it. So in that framework, you can't really posit a common design interpretation, not because it's an invalid interpretation, because the rules of, of science don't allow it. It's, you know, it's, this sure. is the influence of methodological naturalism coupled with this deeply anti-teleological uh, view of, of, you know, biology, which to me I think really is sad because it, it's such an impoverished view of biological systems where your, your first inclination is that things are non-functional or they don't really serve an ultimate purpose or right. it's junk versus seeing these systems as elegant designs and maybe we don't understand what the purpose is but it, we're motivated to seek that purpose and that particular approach is incredibly fruitful uh the his, history bears that out what's what's interesting to me and in, in again in, in the in the realm that i operate in in business and engineering um the single largest 
area of engineering seeing the most explosive growth is in bioengineering. Observation of the complexity and the just the, the, the beautiful interaction of the things, even on the micro scale in biology, that engineers are going, wow, I had no idea. That is a phenomenal yeah. idea. In fact, we could use that for you name it, X. In, yeah. yeah. you know, you, there's so many things that we are learning as humans. You know, even in the in the very creative and ingenious realm of uh, engineering and and physics, that we only see in in tiny micro yeah. organisms and how they operate and how they use energy and yeah. how they function together in such an incredibly intricate manner. Yeah. Um, so that 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 drives my, it, for me. It drives a, a wonder and an awe in the creator that I didn't possess yeah. before as well. So, yeah. what is what is a uh, Lately, if you will, in the last year, other than congratulations, you yeah. took over uh, um, reasons to believe and, and running it and operating it, which must be a megalithic sort of sort of uh, task for you. But uh, and only because you're a scholar and you have to be pulling your hair out. I don't have much. You still do, but you won't in a year. <laughs> Trying to pull your hair out and managing this this wonderful organization and doing the research that you've yeah. been doing your whole life and that you love to do. How do you balance that? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a challenge, and, and, I, and but I'm learning, and I've got great people around me that are, that are helping to support, support that work. But, uh, you know, my, my, my first love is the scholarship, you know, but, you know, it's also exciting, too, to have leadership responsibilities and to be able to cast a vision for the organization that I think is a very exciting vision and to, to, to realize that, boy, if we could pull this off, the number of lives that could be transformed for the gospel is beyond, you know, our Ex- capacity to even imagine. Absolutely. That's exciting to me, you know. And, it, and, it's, and it's fun. I, I think it is fun to see men and women who are just consummate in terms of their scholarship, who are also consummate in terms of their Christian character, but they just don't quite know how to get involved in ministry in a way that really leverages their scholarship. So to come alongside those people and really encourage them and, and to open up opportunities for them just you know through the platform that God has given us at Reasons to Believe, but also through our experience and again, you know, through our, our, our words of encouragement, you know, that's exciting to, to 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 be able to replicate yourself of sorts. And a lot of times God may use these people in an even more powerful way than he would ever have used me. But my role is to to really help that person to be the the, the best that God wants them to be. Exactly. I it 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 again strikes me how difficult it it, it must be that you are contending or struggling against the outside influence of the skeptic, the, the agnostic, the atheist, and, and you, you're contending for the faith against that and bringing you know, rational uh, proof and evidences and inferences to that. But you also have to struggle sometimes against those inside the Christian church, even the, especially the theologians who would who would see certain things in science and not understand it fully, and before trying to understand it fully, will make an accommodation that Scripture is not yeah. inerrant. Yeah. 
Um, so that's got to be a tough balance between the two, and yet you're yeah. pulling you're pulling it off. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I made a plug before for Hugh's book, which hasn't come out yet, on yeah. rescuing inerrancy. Yeah. Having read it, it is it is an absolutely critical work, I think, yeah. for the the Christians who would be in science, yeah. and the theologians who would be in the yeah. business of scripture. Yeah. To really consider and when work together, and you guys again have pulled it off wonderfully. Yeah. Well, you know, when uh, the idea for that book came up a few years ago, almost everybody uh, on staff really encouraged you that this could be one of the most important books that you've ever written. Um, and he's written a lot of important books, <laughs> yeah. you know, for that for the very reasons that you're outlining, Dan. And and if people, not to a shameless plug here, but you know, if, if people want to get a copy of that book, we are uh, giving it away with a donation to Reasons to Believe uh, oh. to, from, from you know, the fall through the, the end of the, the calendar year. And then it'll be available for sale in January. So people can, can either wait till January to buy a copy or they can, can donate any amount and, and they'll get a copy of the book. And that's Reasons.org. Yeah, Reasons.org. Great. Well, thanks uh, for joining us. Oh, um, my pleasure. It, it's I always feel an honor uh, being able to interview yourself and you and those uh, associated with uh, reasons to believe. I'm I'm your biggest fan, and uh, it's interesting. We're going to get to serve each other and uh, our king together within oh anywhere between one day and forty years. Yeah. Uh, I'm just really excited about that. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. We'll uh, wrap it up again, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Fuzrana, leader of Reasons to Believe. Thanks.